Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. Today's episode explores the history and lessons of the U.S. Great Railroad Strike of 1877. America will never be a socialist country. country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. After a period of ebb in the class struggle, the American labor movement today is taking the initial steps to reclaim the traditions of the past. Now we see the ongoing struggle of railroad workers who were preparing to shut down the railways before the Biden government imposed union-busting legislation to ban their right to strike. So how can workers today fight and win? Mark Rahman answered this question at the 2022 New York Marxist School by providing an overview of the Great Railroad Strike and drawing on the lessons of this inspiring period of U.S. history referred to as the Labor Wars. In the United States, in the late 19th and early 20th century, the struggle to establish unions and to basically wrest even the smallest concessions from the bosses more often took the form of war than of diplomacy. Perhaps nowhere else in the world has the establishment of the labor movement been such a bitter fight. Street battles with police, the National Guard, militias, private armies of big business, those are ultimately the forges that built the American labor movement. The unionists, trade unionists, many of them socialists, communists, and anarchists, basically began breaking the sanctified laws of the United States from the very beginning just by daring to organize workers. And uh, because unions were all but illegal throughout much of the country, the forerunners of the labor movement weren't able to approach their task from the comfort of office buildings uh, with contracts as their main fighting weapon. Ultimately, the pioneers of the labor movement were given no choice uh, by big business in the state, uh, but to basically fight through their collective power as workers, not only through their collective power as workers, but often they had to fight, you know, basically, literally from trenches uh, and resorting to armed conflict in order to defend themselves against the violence of the bosses. And it's with this in mind that Trotsky said, you know, it's a quote I'm sure many of you have already heard, Americans are enthusiasts and sportsmen before they are specialists and statesmen, and it would be contrary to the American tradition to make a major change without choosing sides and cracking heads. And Trotsky was speaking, you know, having actually seen the entire period from 1877 through the 1930s, uh, which is referred to by many historians as the, uh, the great upheaval, some call it, others call it the labor wars. And, uh, and it was a really, you could say, a unique period in U.S. history, but I think, uh, I think there's reasons to say that that was the beginning of something that was interrupted by an aberration, essentially. It's a period that's frankly quite alien to that which we've experienced throughout you know, almost all of our lives. The last several decades, as we've seen, have been characterized by a low ebb in the class struggle in the United States. And uh, you know, the fighting traditions of the past have been forgotten through, you know, through generation after generation of labor leader. And I think the real thing that you can see here is that leadership can play the decisive role in a, both a positive sense and a negative sense. Uh, with many leaders today, many of the labor leaders, content to basically preside over a retreating force. The labor movement today is only just beginning to take the baby steps to kind of reclaim those traditions of the past. You know, with the efforts of new layers of the class to gain union recognition and fight, like Amazon, Starbucks, REI, Trader Joe's, and more. Uh, layers that were previously dismissed by many on the left because they weren't overall wearing, uh, you know, factory workers and just mere service workers. 
We've also seen the fights of teachers and the annual efforts of grad students to organize, layers who in previous decades wouldn't have even identified as workers at the time. Uh, we've also seen, very recently, the return to militancy of older layers of the class. Uh, for the past few months, those who have been paying attention you know, have basically been looking at what's going on with the railroad workers across the United States, preparing for a strike against the inhuman pace of work and scheduling. So far, 30% of the railroad workers, they're organized into several different unions. They've turned down the tentative agreement that was put forward by the Biden administration, you know, hashed out by the Democrats. And there's still another 50% left to vote on it, which is an enormous chunk. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of stuff to keep a close eye on. Because a strike of railroad workers today would seize 40% of all freight in the country. And that would basically you know, mean big implications for the economy. So the railroad workers are in an extremely favorable position to win their demands. And uh, if a strike came to pass, it would really expose who the Democrats and Republicans really represent. Uh, and it would really you know, make things very clear. And I think with this effort, uh, the work of uh, the railroad workers to prepare for a potential strike the Railroad Workers United, which is kind of a group trying to you know, forge them together, uh, they put out a call for railroad employees to study the history of railroad struggles here in the United States. Of course, we couldn't agree more with that. Uh, you know, there's a ton to be learned from the struggles of uh, the railroad workers in this country, but for the entire class, and especially for us as Marxists. So that whole period, the great upheaval, that you know, historic period of class war, is understood to have begun uh, in the summer of 1877, when railroad workers uh, went on strike. The year 1877 in a lot of the history books you know, represents a significant turning point in the history of the United States. There's a pretty clear defined before and a clear defined after. Uh, but I would say the strike of 1877 appears almost exclusively in the books of, you know, that focus on the history of the labor movement. And even there, I think one of the biggest weaknesses is that it's measured alongside other strikes of the late 19th century. It's kind of held up in the same kind of zone. It's just another strike. You know, there's the Homestead strike, Pullman strike, Colorado Coalfield War, and many others. But 1877 was a strike unlike others. First of all, it was great. It was the great railroad strike. Uh, they, they liked that word a lot back then, but it was great. It was very big. Um, beginning as a strike of railroad employees, it became essentially a nationwide movement that seized the country's economy. And for an ever so brief period, raised the question of who rules society. Uh, you know, the movement manifested as numerous clashes of strikers with the state in uh, nearly every corner of the country, in places like here in New York, in Chicago, Newark, Louisville, and others, large demonstrations were brutally repressed by the police. In smaller railroad towns that dotted the country throughout the entire country, uh, the strike erupted into what this historian David O'Stowell describes as community revolts. You know, basically it drew in the entirety of the working class and even middle class layers. Uh, which completely shattered the police and the state militias. In places like Baltimore and Pittsburgh, massacres carried out by state militias spurred what became disorganized riots, which I would say were on an insurrectionary scale. And in St. Louis, where the movement came to be led by the Working Men's Party, uh, the strike turned into a relatively orderly general strike, which drew out nearly every single workplace into mass marches and demonstrations, essentially leaving the workers of the city as the de facto power on the streets. So 1877 was essentially the announcement of the American working class to the world that it was becoming a force capable of ruling over society. Uh, it's for this reason that there's so much silence in the history books surrounding the strike. In the early 1900s, bourgeois historians and future presidents like uh, Theodore Roosevelt 
and Woodrow Wilson, they were more interested in telling the story of the triumphant uh, you know, victory of the idealized democracy, or in the case of uh, Wilson, you know, rehabilitating the slave aristocracy. But writers at the time in 1877 who were hostile to the strikers recognized the significance then. So writing in his book called The Annals of the uh, Great Strikes, Missouri legis state legislator named Joseph Dacus said, the strikers had now become a mighty power. With a purpose of revolution, with organization and leadership, it was within the grasp of the railroad employees and other classes of laborers to have taken absolute possession of every commercial center in the nation. I, they like I, uh, <laughs> even to have overturned the government itself. Uh, another contemporary writer of the time, this guy, uh, James McCabe, he drew connections directly to the Paris Commune, which took place six years earlier. Uh, almost without warning, the American people were brought face to face with a conflict which for a while threatened their very existence as a nation. The worst elements of the old world that had been driven out of Europe suddenly appeared in our midst and proclaiming their terrible doctrines of destruction and rapine, uh, endeavored to revive in our prosperous and peaceful land the horrors of the Paris Commune. Uh, of course, we know that it wasn't merely the terrible doctrines of, uh, of European immigrants that spurred 1877, but, but you see the general mood and, uh, and reaction to this movement was, uh, was a little bit different than you kind of would expect from the history books today. So what, what were the things that fed into the movement? Uh, to put 1877 in context, it has to be understood that the year is often viewed as the decisive end of the Civil War period. Uh, while the war ended in 1865, we know that Reconstruction had lasted until 1876. There was the highly contested election in 1876 between Republican uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and uh, Samuel Tilden, Democrat. This was the second election in U.S. history in which the uh, winner of the popular vote lost the election. It was basically resolved through backroom deals uh, where the Republicans agreed to end the federal government's occupation of the South, basically getting, ending Reconstruction. They agreed to provide grants for a Southern Transcontinental Railroad, and they effectively decided to hand power, political power, back to the former slave owners throughout the Southern states. And this is a huge turning point in the fate of the Southern United States. You know, you went from the revolutionary period of Reconstruction to a whole period that, you know, gave way to uh, eventually Jim Crow era, characterized by segregation and violent racist terrorism. So the revolutionary events of the Civil War and Reconstruction, you know, obviously made an enormous impact on the thinking of all layers of society. And I think it's important to understand what the thinking of workers were at this time. Prior to the Civil War, the Republican Party rallied around the concept of free labor. It was basically a means to congeal small farmers, artisans, workers into one political force. You know, free labor was juxtaposed to slave labor, obviously. Uh, and in this context, I think it can best be understood in kind of a more middle-class kind of conception. You know, labor was understood to not be free if it involved dependence on another person. And all of this really springs from the relatively unique uh, economy of the United States at that time, uh, which allowed a high proportion of uh, small farmers and artisans. So given this, the early wage workers of, uh, of the United States, they kind of either had to think of themselves as entering into a contract on an equal footing with their employer, or they really couldn't think of themselves as being free labor. And I think that really, uh, really feeds into a lot of uh, what we saw in 1877. Those that didn't see the dynamic in that kind of free labor sense and recognized correctly the exploitative nature of wage work, they saw themselves as wage slaves. And uh, they saw the end of the continued existence of the slave system as something that would eventually take over Northern society as well. Not necessarily true, but, uh, but that was the fear. From their vantage point, many white workers saw themselves in their brothers and sisters who were enslaved in the southern states. 
This conception, it understandably annoyed uh, abolitionists, given the completely out of proportion comparison between the brutality of uh, chattel slavery and, uh, and wage labor. But this sense of solidarity between laborers in the North and the South uh, is undeniably part of what allowed the American labor movement to be so uniquely motivated, uh, um, uniquely motivated contingent in the fight to eradicate slavery. And in this, Marxists weren't a small feature. Given the zeal with which most advanced workers uh, dove into the struggle to end slavery, the early workers' organizations, all the various you know, citywide councils, uh, labor councils and all that, they all disappeared once the war began as they, uh, as they joined en masse the Union Army. Groups like the Communist Clubs here in New York and in New Jersey also disappeared overnight. Uh, it wasn't until after the war that the labor movement re was really re revived. It was completely disintegrated by the war itself. It was also during this period that industrial capitalism really began an unimpeded growth across the country. You know, with the expansion of the railroads, the United States was finally building up what would become a national economy, something that wasn't, you know, separate little uh, regional things kind of loosely stitched together, but something that was truly forged together as one. The economy of small farmers, artisans, small workshops was giving way to industrial capitalism, you know, thrusting whole layers of society into the working class. You know, the former small farmers and artisans found themselves soon to be basically mere appendages uh, of machines in this new society. Uh, this uh, historian, the guy who, uh, who kind of called this period the Great National Barbecue, uh, at least the Great National Barbecue for the Rich, uh, he painted it well, though, in another way when he said that it was, uh, it was a period in which the, the machine was enthroned, or just the enthronement of the machine, uh, where it was basically placed on this high pedestal. Instead of the small workshops where there was one proprietor, one boss, who might routinely be present on, you know, and have to face the actual laborers on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, it was now a situation where the corporation had basically shown itself to be the uh, you know, superior method of capitalist rule. In place of the familiar boss, of course, uh, you know, there was now faceless investors and board members that called the shots. It sounds like our world today, doesn't it? With the growth of industrial capitalism in the national economy, there came efforts of workers to organize beyond just the local, uh, local trades councils that characterized the pre-war labor movement. There's the beginning of the eight-hour leagues, uh, which were effectively alliances of workers' organizations, the actual unions, uh, but also middle-class social reformers who were kind of like single-issue cam campaigners, I guess you could think of, uh, fighting for the eight-hour workday. And, uh, and Marx described this movement as the first fruit of the American Civil War, you know, understanding it as being something that the, uh, the Civil War, the Second American Revolution, as we understand it, it was something that was uncorked by that. There was also the, uh, the National Labor Union, led by uh, William Silvis, uh, which is notable for being among the first to be desegregated as a matter of principle. Uh, but these massive changes in the economy, they pushed skilled craftsmen into unskilled jobs, dispossessed small farmers of their land, and eventually the Panic of 1873, which is arguably the first global recession, was to thrust millions into unemployment. So the economic battering that the working class was receiving at this point, and the distracting role to a certain degree of the middle class social reformers meant that really none of these early efforts to build a nationwide uh, union movement was able to really survive this period. So the working class in 1877 basically had little to speak of in terms of organization. You had craft unions here and there, you had citywide trades councils, but other than that, there was no real big, strong union movement in the, in the United States. So now moving on to the railroads. You know, they were the biggest corporations in the country in 1877, uh, with the biggest being the Pennsylvania Railroad. 
And in little more than a decade, the railroads basically become a major feature of life for nearly every individual in the country. And to give some uh, stats to it, in 1865, the United States had 35,000 miles of track. Just eight years later, that had doubled to 70,000 miles. From 1865 to 1877, investments in the railroads had more than quadrupled. And uh, I, think, I think in today's context, one way to think of it is you know, the, the rise of a corporation like Amazon, which went from not being all that you know, apparent in day-to-day life, oh, they sell books, to being something where you see them everywhere. I think there's some, some comparisons that can be drawn there. And another thing I think that features you know, the, the role of the railroads at the time is that they were run directly through the industrial uh, neighborhoods and cities. So they went right through the working class districts uh, with absolutely no safety infrastructure. So it was almost routine for workers uh, and their children to be hit and killed or crushed and you know, mangled by trains. Yeah, and the railroads had also employed a very large proportion of the population throughout the country, uh, whether it was the warehouse or dock workers, brakemen, firemen, engineers, flagmen, and by the way, firemen, they're the people who, who run the fires and the locomotives. It wasn't uncommon for these tens of thousands of railroad workers to have missing fingers or hands uh, because, because of the work they did, especially the brakemen, uh, you know, basically connecting the trains together. They would routinely get their hands crushed. And I think it's important to note that brakemen and firemen also largely viewed their jobs as a kind of uh, apprenticeship to eventually become engineers, which was kind of seen as like the really skilled, you know, like privileged kind of layer of the, of the railroad workers. So given this outlook within the railroad workers, the unions that did exist were divided by craft completely, uh, leaving them completely divided when they were actually dealing with management. And another important element of how the railroads function with the rest of society is that they, they basically function as 100% unimpeded monopolies in most small towns across the country, because it's the only game in town as far as shipping. So this allowed the railroads to charge arbitrary and extremely high rates uh, for, for shipping freight, uh, and the dynamic also ate directly into the wages of workers, as more, more and more people had to depend on things that were shipped from outside of their, their region or their local area. So it also affected small business people uh, pretty harshly, who found bigger producers basically prioritized over them. So given this dynamic, the railroads had earned the hatred of, of a pretty wide cross-section of the population. It was basically like the 1% versus 99%. Uh, it drew in a lot of middle-class people uh, who also hated the railroads. But this hatred at the bottom of society was inverted at the top. You know, the intimate connections between the railroad bosses and politicians were completely out in the open. You know, it was common for state legislators or Congress people to basically do, you know, pass some laws in favor of the railroads and then end up, you know, with a job for the railroads uh, immediately when their terms ended. It was also quite common for leading politicians to just go on vacations, you know, on the, on the railroads' dimes, traveling for free and staying at the resorts and estates of the big railroad bosses. And uh, the same dynamic plays out today, of course. We know this is basically how things, how things are going on. But it, they didn't even try to hide it in 1877. It was right out in the open. So to return to some of the economic factors that played into it, I mentioned the, the Panic of 1873. It lasted through the entire rest of the decade. Uh, I think some, some say it didn't end until like 1880. But the situation increased the precarious situation of the working class even more broadly with rising unemployment and declining wages. By the time 1877 came around, many workers in, uh, in many industries had already uh, taken wage cuts of 10 to 25 percent. Uh, that's basically how they dealt with it uh, at the time. Rather than necessarily direct unemployment, they would just drive wages down, uh, was more what they emphasized. The dynamic with the railroads in particular 
was an unwillingness to reduce the, uh, the dividends given out to their investors. So with the declining number of freight shipments because of the downturn in the economy, rates rose and wages fell to cover the profit margins. And in, uh, in May of 1877, the main railroad bosses met uh, in a pretty widely covered event here in New York to, to set the freight rates. Um, and it was something that was like, you know, when you read the newspapers, it was like the big event of the day. Uh, it's like Elon Musk taking over Twitter or something. You know, the meeting was ultimately just to try to settle and come up with an agreement over the freight rates to maximize their profits. Uh, and it's something that was referred to at the time as the rate wars. So that this was all negotiated and made public. But it's very clear evident uh, from the you know, subsequent events that there was also a coordinated uh, agreement to cut wages across all the major railroads by 10%. They later denied this, that this was what, what happened, but they almost all carried out this wage cut uh, following these meetings. And I think it's also important to note that over the preceding years, many of the railroads had already made substantial wage cuts, just like all the other industries. But this was the first time that it was going to be coordinated across all of them. So the Pennsylvania Railroad was the first one to implement the wage cut on June 1st. And uh, at the time, members of the, of the Brotherhood of Railroad Engineers, they naively met with the uh, railroad's president, uh, Tom Scott, to basically try to convince him to drop the cut. But of course, he argued with them that this is just a temporary move. You know, once the economy gets better, we'll raise your wages. No big deal. And the engineers, as na or, you know, the leaders of the engineers, at least, as, as uh, naive as they were, they kind of accepted this. And they just went back to the workers and said, yeah, fellas, we just got to take it on the chin. We all got to tighten our belts. So seeing this spineless response uh, from the mo among the most conservative members of, uh, of the workforce, other workers of the Pennsylvania Railroad set about organizing what came to be called the Trainmen's Union. And uh, this was a pioneering effort to organize railroad workers on an industrial basis across all the different jobs, not only firemen, brakemen, engineers, conductors, but also the warehouse workers and, uh, and others. So it was founded in Allegheny City, which, you know, comrades who might know uh, Pittsburgh geography, that's just north of the river, but it's technically part of Pittsburgh now. They immediately hired this guy, uh, Robert Ammon, who was a brakeman. Uh, as a union organizer, and over the following weeks, he basically traveled all along the railroads, traveling out of Pittsburgh, uh, hastily establishing new branches of the trainmen's union with the idea of calling a strike later in the month to reverse the wage cut. And he didn't just stay on the Pennsylvania Railroad. He went on to all the railroads that, uh, that radiated basically out of the city. So that included the Baltimore and Ohio and others. And there's some evidence, which I think is really interesting, that one of the ways the, the workers organized this union was through telegraph lines that they had run under the noses of the bosses alongside parallel to the existing telegraph lines, uh, which is pretty cool. I mean, there's no way to really prove that this was the case, but there's, there's indications that like there's no way that they could have been able to coordinate some of this stuff without it. But this effort to organize a strike ultimately turned out to be a failure. Uh, the plans of the trainmen's union were found out, the, the leaders of the union were fired, and it was basically, it seemed like there would be no strike, that that was the end of it, uh, that they were defeated. And, uh, you know, all the newspaper headlines, strike averted, you know, it was news of the day. So the coast appeared to be clear for the other railroads to go ahead with their planned wage cuts. So it wasn't until a few weeks later, on July 12th, uh, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad uh, announced its own wage cut to be effective on July 16th. And through the rest of that week before July 16th, there were scattered walkouts, you know, throughout the line. 
throughout that week. And it was clearly not a coordinated effort of the workers. It was more of a spontaneous like reaction of different layers of, uh, of uh, the railroad workers, mostly among the brakemen and firemen. Firemen in particular, because they were among the most unskilled. So they, you know, they had the most to lose in the case of uh, being booted. However, in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is really the beginning of the strike, members of the trainmen's union took the initiative and transformed the walkout of just a few dozen railroad workers into what ultimately became a revolt of the entire town against the railroads. So the workers stopped all freight traffic in this one town, uh, which was a major choke point for the uh, Baltimore and Ohio. There was basically no way to get west of, of uh, Martinsburg uh, without going through this town. Uh, and it seems that the activity of the strikers in Martinsburg pretty much gave the strikers elsewhere the confidence to escalate uh, in their own areas. So it took you know, this spontaneous movement and it emboldened all the best elements uh, in those, in those uh, areas to fight. So within hours, Cumberland, Maryland, uh, Newark, Ohio, and many of the other towns uh, followed suit and, and carried out similar uh, shutdowns. Uh, I mean, in some cases, it's arguable they had no choice because trains weren't coming and going anyway. Uh, so that's easy. Um, so by the next day, uh, the strike had been firm throughout the entire uh, Baltimore and Ohio line, manifesting, as I said, revolts of the nearly the entire populace against the railroads. And uh, the headlines start talking about the railroad war, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, what made the strike notable in these small towns was the involvement not only of railroad workers, but workers from, from other industries who were sympathetic, and even small business people and farmers. And the efforts of the trade, trainmen's union to draw in as many people as possible to the cause of the railroad workers were obviously successful. The newspapers always refer to, uh, to many of these people as the you know, nameless ringleaders, uh, which I think is uh, pretty amusing. In each one of these small towns who, who ultimately played that decisive role, they're like the organic leaders of the class. Sometimes organic, but in the case of, uh, of the trainmen's union, it, it was so hastily organized, it, it was inevitably uh, the organic leaders of the class. Yeah, one newspaper reported on the failed attempt of the mayor of Martinsburg to get scabs to run the trains. And uh, so there's this one report that says, uh, the strikers were, were reinforced by a large body of citizens swelling the crowd until it reached the proportions of a large mob. They really liked using the word mob back then uh, to describe any group of, uh, of workers. Uh, this same dynamic repeated itself over, over you know, the following 24 hours in one town after another through Maryland, West Virginia, Ohio, uh, and Indiana. Even in areas beyond these small towns, this is some of the more interesting stuff. Canal workers of the Chesapeake and uh, Ohio Ohio Canal uh, joined in the fight. And uh, these workers in previous decades were uh, famous mostly for fighting each other, which I think is, is uh, interesting, uh, you know, with the you know, ethnic and racial divisions being stoked by the, by the bosses. So notably in 1834, uh, I think it was actually on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, it was the first time the army was actually used in a labor dispute in the United States. And the labor dispute was between two rival groups of Irish workers who were fighting each other. In 1877, though, these workers, black, white, immigrant, native-born, had found their common enemy. And I think that's a significant thing, that the class struggle pushes uh, for that unity organically, whether there's leadership there or not. So there are reports of these canal boatmen stopping scab trains and uh, putting the locomotives fire out. And it, it's, it's really funny to read these reports because they'll, they'll put the fire out, the militia will show up, and then they'll like, take their boats back across the river where the militia can't follow them or they'll disappear into the woods and basically just like shout and throw rocks at the militia, just like taunting them. Other reports involve miners throughout the re region using their classic weapon, dynamite, uh, to sabotage uh, the movement of scab trains. 
Uh, and many of these reports uh, give the impression of the absolute confidence among the workers who seem to have found basically the attempts of the militia uh, to help the railroad bosses just completely pathetic. But it also appears that there was a pretty strong degree of organization and discipline involved. Uh, there were relatively few deaths uh, at this point, especially. Uh, possibly through the workers' telegraph is part of the reason that they were able to be as organized, but also more likely was that they would send young kids basically on trains because passenger trains was st were still uh, allowed to travel. So in each of these towns, the local police force, I think this is a, one of the big significant things. We often say the, the divisions in the state. Uh, in each of these towns, the local police force was completely useless. Uh, at the time, most towns, especially small towns, relied basically on like a single sheriff who only, you know, with only a few select areas like New York and Boston actually having professional police forces. And by and large, local mercenaries were basically relied on for law and order, which made them particularly unreliable when they would, you know, were faced with like masses of striking workers. They would just like get the phone call like, hey, you want to come, you know, establish some law and order? It's like, no, thanks. I'm busy. I'm watching the Phillies game or something. <laughs> but uh, so the, the, the militias also at the time, the state militias, which preceded the present-day National Guard, were also useless in this situation for similar reasons. At the time, they were organized on a localized basis and mostly just con consisted of skilled workers for the most part, many of whom were intimately connected with the strikers and in some cases were strikers themselves. So they weren't going to be called out because they were busy you know, holding down the strike. There's one uh, interesting report that when the state, the state militia was first sent to Martinsburg to put down the strike, they were greeted with 600 strikers who were on the platform armed with revolvers. So, uh, so the militia opted correctly, in my opinion, to close their blinds and just hide out in the train until, you know, until things either calmed down or they got reinforcements. So seeing this situation unfolding, which, which was in effect no longer just a strike against the wage cut, but was rapidly turning out to be a generalized revolt against the railroads. Uh, the railroad bosses called on the federal government to send the army to Martinsburg. What's also interesting here is, in some cases, the state militias were called out, not by the governors of the states, but by the owners of the railroads. They would actually make the phone, the, the phone calls or telegraphs at the time. They were the ones, they would just skip over. It was clear who, who was in charge of the state. Uh, so the hope, anyway, in, the, in this case, of sending the federal government the hope was that they could rely on the army given the familiarity of uh, the lack of familiarity uh, of the troops with the locals, of course, and that the strikers would have more respect for the federal government than the local politicians who were more, more like clearly in bed with the railroad officials. Six years earlier, we know Marx described the Paris Commune as storming heaven, and I, I get a lot of similar kind of like goosebumps kind of feelings about uh, some of this stuff, and I think it echoes pretty loudly here, similar kind of uh, determination. And uh, to give a flavor of the attitude among the railroad employees, there's this uh, proclamation that was posted up all along the Baltimore and Ohio uh, railroad lines. Bread, strike and live, remain and perish. Be it understood that if the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company does not meet the demands of the employees, the officials will hazard their lives and endanger their property. We shall run their trains and locomotives into the river. We shall blow up their bridges, we shall tear up their railroads, we shall consume their shops with fire and ravage the hotels with desperation. Our blood, they can get it. Our lives, we are willing to sacrifice them. Not for them, but for our families and our rights. Call out your armed hordes if you want them to shield yourselves. If you can but remember that no force, however death-telling, can repel for a moment our determination. They may think or call us weak, but we are not weak. Fifteen hundred noble miners are at our backs. Besides, sirs, the merchants and all communities at large along the whole line of road are on our side, 
and more, the working class of every state in the union are in our favor. And we feel confident that the God of the poor and oppressed of the earth are with us. Therefore, let the clashing of arms be heard. Let the fiery element be poured if they think it well. But in view of our rights and in defense of our families, we shall conquer or we shall die. Pretty bold. I think it's uh, also worth pausing here and discuss the involvement of the Workmen's Party, which is a pretty significant element, not in, in the early stages of the strike, but in the later stages. They're a relatively small organization of, an, of about 4,000 members, and it's really hard to judge how tight the organization was. I think it's probably safe to assume it was a pretty loose formation. Uh, you know, they would probably just go online, pay $15 a year dues, <laughs> something like that. But the party had been founded the previous year in Philadelphia and, uh, and was politically a compromise between the Lasallians and the Marxists. And, you know, the followers of LaSalle, they were more like a utopian socialist tendency, I think is probably the best way to describe them. They tended to view everything exclusively in terms of taking power through the ballot and had a sympathetic but somewhat dismissive attitude towards organized labor. You know, in their view, efforts to raise wages to improve working conditions were all ultimately doomed to fail on the basis of capitalism. They didn't recognize the way in which industrial struggle could actually imbue the class with confidence, obviously materially improve their lives and their ability to organize, and, uh, and they didn't see that you know, the fight of, of unions could actually be welded to the political fight. They also had an erroneous view of the state as if it was something that could just be used by whoever won political power through the ballot, something we see directly in the Communist Manifesto. It's you know, one of Marx and Engels' few uh, little changes that they made. The Marxists, on the other hand, within the Workingmen's Party, Seeing the consequences of the middle-class social reformer types over the recent decades viewed it as an absolute necessity for the class to organize itself into unions to give a political force, you know, a strong working class grounding. Uh, and as we know, Marxists didn't have any illusions in the fundamental role of the capitalist state. Uh, but with the, the eruption of this strike, uh, members of the party, Lasallian and Marxist alike, basically saw it as an opportunity. Everywhere, uh, you know, the hostile commentators basically saw, you know, the involvement of the Working Men's Party a little bit later they saw it as the coming of the Paris Commune to the United States. And, uh, and they inaccurately concluded that it was something that was kicked into existence by the Working Men's Party. But uh, in any case, I'll, I'll go ahead and quote Alan Pinkerton, you know, the famous strike breaker. He said, on every railroad that was held by lawless men in every city where violence reigned, and through every excited assemblage where law had been trampled underfoot, this accursed thing came to the surface. If its members did not actually inaugurate the strike, the strikes were the direct result of the communistic spirit spread through the ranks of railroad employees by communistic leaders and their teachings. Not bad. <laughs> so despite the relatively small size, the Workmen's Party, in cities like Chicago, Cincinnati, New York, Jersey City, uh, Newark, uh, Louisville, and others, uh, the Workmen's Party led, led pretty sizable rallies in support of the strikers. Among some of the speakers, some of the names will be familiar, Albert Parsons, the future uh, Haymarket martyr, Peter Clark, a black abolitionist and socialist, and many others who ended up coming into prominence in the decades that followed. And in all of these cities, the demonstrators were violently attacked by the police. In, uh, in Chicago and New York, the police opened fire, killing dozens. Notably, I think, you know, discussion about Supreme Court and its role in society, Notably in Louisville, one of the members of a strike-breaking posse was a future Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. Not an accident. Uh, but in events in these cities, I think, were really small potatoes in the, in the grand scheme of the strike. Uh, so that brings me back to the uh, Baltimore and Ohio uh, Railroad, 
when it made its way to Baltimore. And uh, Baltimore, as far as the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad went, uh, was a much bigger city, much more industrialized, a much you know more diversified, I guess, uh, layers of industry. Uh, so with a large mass of unemployed people, uh, the strike took on completely different characteristics there. You know, the intimate personal and economic ties uh, to the railroad employees didn't really exist for the majority of the Baltimore working class as it had in places like Martinsburg. And uh, so because of this, the influence of the trainmen's union was pretty limited, uh, you know, compared to the small towns. Uh, nonetheless, uh, workers in Baltimore recognized that the struggle of the railroad workers was ultimately their struggle as well. Uh, there was a strong sense of solidarity. So when news spread that the militia, uh, the Maryland militia uh, that was stationed in Baltimore was going to be sent to Martinsburg to crush the strike, thousands of workers surrounded the armory and uh, pelted militiamen with stones and bricks. The, uh, the militia opened fire, instantly killing about two dozen people. Uh, and this triggered basically a riot where railroad property was set on fire and the militiamen were chased through the streets by angry workers. And it was described by uh, sympathetic newspapers as being the second battle of Bunker Hill, uh, which obviously referenced the American Revolutionary War. Uh, and this state of unrest in Baltimore lasted for, for more than a week and was really only quelled once Baltimore was occupied by the army, with two, two warships being sent to the harbor with their artillery like, aimed at the working class neighborhoods. So then the strike in Pittsburgh unfolded in a very similar way, but perhaps more dramatic in some ways. Even though the strike had already been spreading throughout the country, uh, the bosses of the Pennsylvania Railroad were riding pretty high after they dodged the strike earlier with their wage cut. So they insanely, uh, on July 19th, announced that uh, the railroad was going to start implementing the double header on, on most of their freight trains. And basically this meant just doubling the length of the trains by using two locomotives at the front, basically a way to cut the labor force in half, or nearly in half. So it meant unemployment for a huge proportion of the railroad workers who had already been slapped in the face. Not only was this a complete insult to the workers, but it's also the doubleheader was understood to be extremely dangerous and just raised the risks of derailment and injury and all that. So confident was the, uh, the company, though, uh, that this would be accepted that the day that this was supposed to go into effect, the superintendent of the company in Pittsburgh, basically the head of the company in Pittsburgh, he went on vacation. Like, like it's insane. Uh, and as they say, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And of course, the, the railroad workers in Pittsburgh went on strike. Uh, but here, the trainmen's union was clearly much bigger, a much bigger force than it had been even in the small towns. And the economic dynamics of the city, of the strike, were adhered to very quickly, uh, with freight yards filling up with thousands of railroad employees. Uh, the strikers seized control of the entire industry, the entire railroad industry, and uh, facilitated the movement of passenger and postal service, uh, showing that the workers didn't require the bosses at all. Uh, and I think also significantly, the strikers allowed, the, allowed passenger trains to travel with, for free, uh, basically as a way to earn as much support from the general public as possible. Uh, the main leader, that guy, uh, Robert Ammon, the organizer of the trainmen's union, it's around this time that he starts being referred to as Boss Ammon, which I think is, uh, is pretty cool. He was like the boss of the workers, but not, not that kind of boss of workers. <laughs> so some of the demands of the uh, revived trainmen's union was the retraction of the 10% wage cut, the ending of the doubleheader, a demand for firemen to be assigned to each locomotive. Uh, they started basically like laying off firemen and basically having engineers do the work of the firemen. And very significantly, they demanded the abandonment of the tiered wage system for engineers and, uh, and conductors. And prior to this, uh, engineers and conductors were broken into four different categories. So this undeniably showed the superiority of, uh, of industrial unionism. 
and so popular were the strikers that the local militias in Pittsburgh failed to muster even 50% of their force. Uh, it's even said that like the head of the militia showed up and said, oh, we're just here, it's mere form. And, uh, and newspapers said they stacked their arms and retired to the shade. It was basically a picnic. So there was genuine fear among many at this point that this was the end of capitalist rule, many of the bourgeois, of course, and middle class, that this is the end of capitalist rule in the United States. Shutting down of the railroads is essentially shutting down the entire country's economy. Uh, you know, just a segment of the working class was able to flex its muscles and reveal who the real power in society was. In hopes of putting down the strike, they called on the Philadelphia militia. The hope was that out-of-towners would be more willing to be used against the strikers, and this, of course, turned out to be the case. After a days-long standoff between 8,000 strikers and the local sheriff and militia leaders, uh, the Philadelphia militia opened fire and killed dozens of people instantly. And reading the newspaper reports of what followed is, uh, is pretty, pretty incredible. It's like reading an action-adventure uh, novel or something. So one of the reports says, crowds of excited people sprang up as if by magic from all directions, expressing their determination with the strikers in driving the soldiers from the city. Basically, the entire working class population seems to have been actively engaged in war against the Philadelphia militia at this point. Uh, you know, like the groups of workers basically raided local armories and gun shops, and uh, many local militiamen took off their uniforms and joined the strikers. So fleeing the angry crowds, the Philadelphia militia barricaded themselves in, the, in a roundhouse at the Pennsylvania Railroad for shelter, basically being besieged by thousands of workers who had their guns fixed on the doorways. But it seems like more cool-headed layers of the workers kind of kind of calmed things down a little bit, and it seems like the militia was able to you know slip by unharmed, uh, fleeing ten miles north of the city on top of a hill because they were still concerned about being chased out of the city. Uh, through the night, uh, workers looted and burned every shred of Pennsylvania property in the city, uh, which was no small portion of property in what is today's uh, Pittsburgh Strip District. So uh, 3,500 freight cars, 125 locomotives, and dozens of buildings were destroyed that night. And these are the only photographs of, uh, of the strike, too. You can, you can Google it. You can look up Pittsburgh after 1877, and it's just like a wasteland. It's pretty amazing. The strikers wouldn't allow the firefighters to extinguish uh, Pennsylvania Railroad property. Uh, they actually assisted in putting out fires on other businesses, but wouldn't let them put out fires on uh, Pennsylvania Railroad property. Uh, and their target was more than just the railroad property. They also burned down General Pearson's mansion. But by my, my estimates, two-thirds of Pittsburgh's population had been on the streets in those, uh, those few days, which would be about 100,000 people in this one event, uh, to one degree or another, whether they were actively you know, burning stuff, fighting, fighting the militia, or just kind of like in, you know, just in, up in the uh, excitement of the moment, uh, which uh, is pretty incredible. So this involved steel workers, miners, railroad workers, factory workers of all sorts, the unemployed, pretty much every conceivable cross-section of the working class. But once again, this also revealed the limits of the trainmen's union as an organization. Uh, given, given the situation, it had become something was, that was way out of their control. They couldn't place themselves at the head of the movement, given their small size. But uh, now to move on to St. Louis, which is a vastly different uh, outcome of the strike, I think. Uh, there's surprisingly little in the national newspapers at the time on St. Louis, and that's because it was a rather orderly affair, uh, but undeniably the most dangerous from the point of view of the bosses. Uh, St. Louis at the time was the fourth largest city in the country, which was one of the main railroad hubs nationally. It was also home to the largest segment of the Workingmen's Party with an uh, estimated quarter of the membership, about 1,000 members in that one city. And given the large German population, it seems that it was dominated uh, by the Marxist wing. 
So when, uh, when the head of the, of the party, Philip Van, Van Patten, uh, issued the call for members to support the strike, he likely only meant for party members to organize solidarity rallies as they did in other places. But in St. Louis, the Working Men's Party, uh, you know, seeing the lack of decisive leadership uh, more broadly, wholly took the initiative. So in the early days of the strike, there were meetings of, uh, of the railroad workers to discuss whether they were going to strike at all, uh, just discussing the wage cut. And it looked like they weren't. Um, they just didn't really know what to do. They had already seen what happened in Baltimore, and they were kind of like, eh, I don't know if we want to be involved in you know, maybe you know, igniting something like that. So one of these large meetings, though, on July 23rd, it was, uh, it's clear that some workmen's party members showed up. Uh, the reports basically talk about how the railroad workers were kind of unsure, as I said, but that rabble-rousing lawyers had fired the hearts of the railroad men. By the next day, uh, the meetings of the railroad workers and, uh, and what became like kind of a work railroad worker, working men's party kind of uh, meetings, they elected an executive committee, which came to be called the Executive Committee. Uh, and historian David Burbank, who wrote, uh, what is that book called? It might just be called the St. Louis Commune, I can't remember. Uh, but he, he refers to this as the, as the American Soviet, the first American Soviet. And this is 28 years before the 1905 revolution in Russia. So the executive committee, they, they passed General Order Number 1, which declared that all railroad workers were to strike until their pre-1873 wages were reinstated. So not only getting rid of the 10% wage cut, but going back, which would have been like going back like a 25% wage cut, another 10% wage cut, or more, potentially. Uh, and I think one of the main characteristics of the strike in St. Louis is that it was largely a series of mass demonstrations, marches, and mass meetings. Uh, and the strike was consciously spread from workplace to workplace, uh, which encompassed way more than just the railroad workers. Uh, the executive committee sent out detachments of strikers to basically discuss with workers at every single workplace and call them out to join the strike. Miners, canners, machinists, steel workers, coopers, you name it, uh, any number of uh, also antiquated uh, jobs. And even some small businesses voluntarily closed and gave all, uh, financial and material support to the strikers. Uh, then there's also general order number two, which I think is also very interesting. This proclaimed that all strikers, which now included all these other industries, would remain on strike until the demands of every single group of workers were achieved. Uh, some historians, for some bizarre reason, think this is a failure in tactics, but it was really the strength of the movement. It was actually you know, forging the St. Louis working class into a solid block that could advance the struggle to a degree that it clearly pl placed the question of who rules society front and center. So instead of a focus just on the demands of the railroad workers, it became a much more general uh, demands, political demands, really. Uh, the EC also called for the nationalization of the railroads uh, and the establishment of an eight-hour workday. The strikers in St. Louis at this point had basically become the only power in the city. They enforced the closure of bars and taverns to prevent drunkenness. They organized worker defense committees to prevent petty crime. And they even had the support and collaboration of the mayor of East St. Louis, who, who was himself a veteran of the 1848 revolution. And throughout this, the mass rallies and marches were basically a, con a constant theme. It's like they went meeting and, and rally crazy. And one thing I couldn't stop laughing about when reading the newspapers is that all these, all these rallies and marches always had drum and fife corps in tow, which I think is uh, pretty amusing. We could bring that tradition back. So the, the workers waved red flags, sang the Marseillaise. Uh, they hoisted loaves of bread up on sticks and bayonets, which was, became like kind of the symbol of the movement of what they were fighting for. They were fighting for bread. Uh, and the strike significantly also drew in a large number of black longshoremen, which were noted by many newspapers who were terrified of this fact. Uh, you know, it really scared the pants off the rich and powerful. 
And the newspapers, uh, you know, describe the black workers as conquerors, basically to paint it as like the most uh, horrific thing ever. And at one of these mass uh, marches, a black worker took the improvised stage and, uh, and gave a speech describing the horrible conditions of the dock workers. And he appealed to the crowd, asking if they would support the struggles of black workers also, which was replied to with roaring shouts of, we will. And uh, it's a really inspiring moment. It's kind of a glimpse into the future of what was potentially possible, you know, with, uh, with the labor movement at this point. Uh, the class struggle began to erode the racism and xenophobia that really uh, was used to divide the workers for that whole period. And I think it's arguable that what existed in uh, St. Louis was, was close to a revolutionary situation. Uh, Farrell Dobbs, writing in Teamster Rebellion about the general strike of 1934, said that if what happened in Minneapolis had been generalized across the country, it undoubtedly would have been a revolution. I think St. Louis, in some ways, was something much bigger than, uh, than, than the strike of Teamsters. Maybe a short period, shorter period of time, but, uh, but you know, maybe a wider spread. The old modes of thinking had clearly broken down. The working class uh, had entered into actively taking power into their own hands. They basically had dual power at this point, with the workers' organizations being the real power on the streets. Even meetings of the mayor, I can't remember his name, but the St. Louis mayor, he, he was setting up these meetings of the, of the Committee of Public Safety. It was just a bunch of middle-class people who would show up with their rifles, basically, oh, we're going to put down this rabble. Uh, but one of these meetings, uh, at, towards the end, it basically started getting taken over by strikers. They would show up and elect their own people as the chair of the meeting. And, and, basically, and basically, it's really interesting reading it, reading the newspaper things, because they're like, a, a representative of the Working Men's Party was elected chair. And it's like, wait, what? How'd that happen? <laughs> but uh, you know, it made, they made it clear that if they wanted public safety, they had to bend, bend to the demands of the workers. And it's for this reason that St. Louis is referred to as the St. Louis Commune. But despite the overwhelmingly optimistic situation, the strike obviously had its limits, inherent in the way that it unfolded throughout the country. St. Louis had been isolated. Uh, they had begun to make these huge political demands as the strike was cresting in that city, but elsewhere it was already being crushed or it had subsided. Uh, the Workmen's Party recognized at this point, the leaders of it, uh, recognized the potential danger that was present in the events in St. Louis, potentially degenerating into what happened in uh, Baltimore and Pittsburgh. Uh, if troops were to arrive in the city, which they were on their way. Um, and it's clear that there was a lack of workers' organizations to marshal uh, the mass of workers that they were, you know, had basically spurred out. Uh, and most of the workers in these marches were, were doing so in a very spontaneous manner without any real clear organization. Uh, so given the situation, the leaders of the party completely lost their nerve. And it's likely that to press on would have inevitably meant a violent clash at some stage. Uh, so they basically called off all the demonstrations. They called off all the mass meetings because they were afraid of what would result from it. And this completely ended uh, basically their primary means, their only means, really, of communicating and coordinating with the mass of strikers. Uh, so this, you know, all the power that was in their hands was completely given up at this point, and everything kind of fizzled out. One by one, different workplaces, demoralized and disappointed workers would return to work. And at this point, like right-wing vigilantes basically just started, you know, that committee of public safety actually became the committee of public safety, but, you know, a counter-revolutionary one. So the opportunity was totally missed in St. Louis, and the, and the commune was over. So throughout the country, the embers of the strike continued to burn well into October. Uh, the last place, they say, is uh, basically Redding, Pennsylvania, where the strike had combined with the struggle of the miners, the Molly Maguires, which had happened earlier that year against uh, the Reading Railroad and mining companies. And it was really here that the strikers had seen the most brutal side of capitalism, 
where uh, Franklin Gowen, the president of the company, had organized the Colon Iron Police, which was basically like the forerunner of the Pennsylvania State Police, but it was privately owned. And I think, generally speaking, I think this movement could have been easily transformed into something much bigger and much longer lasting than it ended up being. If the Working Men's Party had started out with a clear program of taking the struggle onto its logical conclusion, they might have been able to replicate the St. Louis Commune uh, beyond more than just St. Louis. It might have been something that could have been replicated in Chicago, Cincinnati, Newark, New York, et cetera. And, and this would have elevated the struggle to a qualitatively higher level. Uh, and if that had been, been the case, they could have pressed the political demands, the demand for an eight-hour workday, the nationalization of the railroads. And it would have been something much more akin to the Paris Commune. And I think it would have completely transformed the United States for a whole period. Not that the workers would have taken power, but that I think it would have been maybe recognized as the third American Revolution, potentially. But this was fundamentally what turned out really just a learning experience for the American working class, and it highlighted the absolute necessity of organization. So that the working class basically learned the need for, uh, for organization. So the following decade after 1877 saw the massive upsurge, what was formerly a secret society, the Knights of Labor. They didn't even announce their name uh, publicly until 1878. Uh, but they took on a very broad industrial approach as they organized all leaders of a given workplace into their ranks. They even sometimes made exception for bosses, as insane as that is. Uh, at its height, this organization had a membership of 750,000. The Knights of Labor also made giant steps toward desegregating the labor movement. Uh, and they were really a model whose development was unfortunately completely cut across by the upswing of capitalism and the growth of a uh, conservative craft unionism of the American Federation of Labor in the 1890s, which reasserted all that, you know, reintroduced segregation and, uh, and the craft unionism back into it. And of course, as, uh, as Laura said earlier, it wasn't until the rise of the CIO that you saw that, that stuff come back. There were also political shockwaves from the strike, uh, which Marx and Engels took note of, the potential for it. And sure enough, the Workingmen's Party also saw a massive upsurge of support. Some extreme estimates say that they may have actually had a membership after the strike of 600,000 in just the following months, which I think is a dramatic uh, you know, overestimation, but that could be based on, like, on votes that they got, uh, with whole new branches forming out of nothing as well, though. Unfortunately, though, in a very contradictory way, the Lasallian wing actually was strengthened at the expense of the Marxist wing, as counterintuitive as it seems. It seems that the failure of the strike basically legitimized the arguments of Lasalle that you know, organized labor couldn't organize on that basis or couldn't you know, fundamentally fight for their, uh, their interests without taking political power. The party met again in Newark in 1878 and renamed themselves the Socialistic Labor Party, eventually became the Socialist Labor Party. But unfortunately, in subsequent years, that organization, without a firm working class basis, and also just with the Lasallian ideas, the greenback movement of the farmers, completely cut across that. But by the time the Marxists won out again in the, in the Socialist Labor Party, it was under the leadership of uh, Daniel de Leon, who kind of took an ultra-left approach towards the trade unions, basically correcting the Lasallian mistake with yet another mistake. And I think, you know, the whole progressive area, you kind of look at that, and that's really a big focus on, like, the middle class elements, who basically sought ways to put a nice face on capitalism. And alongside this, I think this is another big important element of it, is that in one state after another, after seeing the limitations of the localized militias, the state militias were organized into statewide national guards, uh, recognizing that you couldn't depend on localized uh, forces. And then on the local level, cities began recruiting and building professional police forces. Uh, more and more, you just see like an uptick in that kind of stuff. At the national level, there was a you know, long period of low investment in the army after the Civil War. 
you know, not only was the U.S. becoming an imperialist power, looking to use the army in places like Puerto Rico and Mexico, of course, but they were also concerned about, you know, the need to put down worker uprisings here in the United States. And I think the most important takeaway is that 1877 galvanized the entire working class and emboldened all of the most courageous and uh, self-sacrificing elements of the working class. The best features of the class came to the fore. You know, I think such a strike, a strike potentially of the railroad workers today, could actually play a similar role. And I think that's why we need to read this history and we can see how things can change on a dime. And I think, uh, you know, the next time we're at a paper sale, someone rolls their eyes at the idea of, you know, a socialist revolution or, you know, a united working class struggle, say it can't happen here. We can explain our perspective and we can say, yes, it can happen here. In fact, it did.